Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark, episode 90, Friday, July the 12th, 2019. Welcome everybody, vetgurus.com, the place to go, Mark, and we have an announcement, don't we, about it, we have a new patron, a new patron, do you want me to talk about that, Mark, or do you Yes, want I to do. You want me to talk about <laughs> it? Okay, all right. Welcome to, and is, is a serial, I was going to say serial pest, a serial <laughs> emailer, Nick, That's he'll probably cancel his um, patronage now, um, thank you, Nick, um, for becoming a $5 a month patron for us and and all those little bits help they certainly do help they help pay the pay the um fees for the hosting and uh the bandwidth and and the program that we use so thank you very much nick and um yeah when you look at it mark i think it's what it's a it's a cup of coffee a month you know to help support us and to to have somebody to chat to you every week as you're driving around the practice um seeing your cases in the countryside so I think it's well worth it, Mark. It's probably um, half a coffee, half a coffee down here in Melbourne. The way coffees are these days, Mark. And I don't know about up your way. So yeah, thank you very much, Nick. And yeah, you've um, keep firing the emails to us. We we enjoy your emails. So very thought provoking, most of Nick's emails, and we have read a few out over over the previous episodes. Um, so yeah, thank you, Nick. And um, the only other thing I, I was going to chat about, Mark as far as my news goes, was the membership exam. So the um, unusual pet chapter of the Australian Australasian College, uh, the Australian and New Zealand College of Veterinary Scientists had the membership in unusual pet medicine and surgery exams and the oral examinations were, were just over a week or so ago. And um, it's good to know that um, we had, um, I think we've got something like nine or ten new members, Mark, which is fantastic. Um, so, and I was um, fortunate enough to try and help out a couple of a couple of the um, candidates there. And um, I'm very proud to say, Mark, that the three um, people I mentored, all three passed. So I don't know... Um, um, I'm pretty good at picking people who are smart um, to mentor, <laughs> is all I can say. Well, the the other thing I would say about that, Brendan, is that we have had the, uh, in the you know general uh, um, communication that occurs after these, there's some people that haven't made it through, and I just want to sing out to them that um, you know that uh, I, I the the pathway through these courses, um, through the, the membership in particular, is is difficult, and particularly when you're um, studying and working at the same time. And uh, and no, don't let um, a single setback um, interfere with your overall trajectory of your career. I reckon um, it's never stopped. Fa- repeated failures never stop me, and and I suggest that it's a good thing for other people to follow that same path. Ditto, Mark, and yeah, it's it's a great achievement for those who pass, and for those who didn't pass, gee, yeah, hang in there. You've you've almost certainly learned a hell of a lot more than than what you knew before the start of it. And um, interestingly enough, you mentioned about repeated fails, Mark, and one of the pe- pe- people who passed the exam, it was I think it was their third attempt that they finally passed. So they they hung in there, and they've they've it's a bit been a long slog for them, but they they got there. So fantastic. Um, so. Yeah, just because you don't get there the first time doesn't mean that you're not good um, because, you know, it's it's tough trying to sit exams, especially for people who haven't um, sat exams for a, a long period of time and getting into that study routine while you're holding down a full-time job and, and family commitments as well. So Bloody yeah, hell, it's, it's hard good. enough studying when you don't have a full-time job, let alone um, all the pressures of the workplace and, um, and caseload. And sometimes there just might be that, you know, um, single case that alerts one person to a particular, and then that turns up being an answer that's locked in their memory. Um, so it is exactly as you say, not an absolute judgment of the total amount of that you've learned. It's just that one exam, and I reckon stick at it. You'll get there. 
Definitely. And, um, well, that's all I've got to say news-wise, apart from the fact I was feeling a bit seedy last night, Mark, and no, I wasn't on the on the alcohol. It was just, I don't know whether it's my little man flu catching up with me again, so I've got still got a bit of a, I think it's a little head cold here, so um, if, I, if I go offline for a little bit, Mark, and I'm on mute, you know I'm having a coughing fit again, so I have to fill in as usual. Um, so you have a review for us this week, I, don't you? I do indeed. I, I, last weekend, Kate and I got on, uh, shot up to uh, Newcastle Airport um, very early on Saturday morning. We flew to your famous southern city um, and uh, and then we went into town to the Prince's Theatre um, in, I think, it, is that in the uh, northern part of Melbourne, northern part of the CBD Anyway, um, yes, we um, well, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was trying to picture where it is, but yeah, you, you're absolutely correct there. I should, know, yes, <laughs> um, you suburban boy, you. Anyway, um, we uh, the 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 uh, the the reason for the journey um, was the uh, the Harry Potter play, the Cursed Child. So, um, so I'm, I we we were. Uh, we had high hopes. I suppose one of the always one of the um, the bad things to do when you're going to see a uh, um, you know a play or a show or a movie or whatever um, is to have excessively high hopes. And we, uh, um, Kate and I, are, are, are long-term Harry Potter fans, um, love J.K. Rowling's writing, and um, and uh, and Kate had a history of reading each book as it came out to our kids, so it has you know, sort of family memories as well. So we got um, pretty good tickets. Uh, we took uh, um, my niece along. Um, she's a bit of a uh, avid uh, Harry Potter fan as well. And um, and it was a marathon, Brendan. It was, we got there um, at uh, two, into the theatre at 2.30, um, about 90 minutes, taking us up to four, then 20 minute break, then out, um, uh, then back in for um, another just under 90 minutes. Then we had a, a hour and a half break for dinner, back in at um, 7, uh, another 90 minutes, 20-minute break, and the final 90 minutes. So just oh. six hours of um, – of, uh, of, um, uh, yeah. of, Hog- of Hogwarts, of Potter. Um, yes, I did see that it was – so it, it's part one and part two, isn't it? That's right. Have, um, so they they strongly recommend that you purchase tickets that, and the tickets are separate for each of those that, that, you, that you go to see both and you either see both on the same day or, or you do have the option of, say, seeing one part one on one day and then the next day or evening you see part two. But um, And there were, some gee, people, there were some people who, like, would just do – obviously part one or part two while we were there and they'd obviously done yes. the other bits at other times. But I think while it was a marathon, um, I think the, you know, the, the, the surge and interest and um, I think doing it in one go was the best way for us. So was it any good, Mark? It, it was great, Brendan. It was excellent. It was, it was not, you know, it wasn't the books. It wasn't the movies it was a different medium um it told a different story um there was excellent continuity and context and you know how all the young people love their canon they want to stick to the story they don't want um uh new and and different universes popping up everywhere so it was all authentic the the uh, theater was done out to the nth degree um they obviously are going to be running this play for some time at this theater because it's you know the carpet, yes. the fittings, everything is uh, uh, is Harry Potter world or Hogwarts or um, uh, you know the light fittings have the emblems of each of the houses, um, Slytherin or um, Gryffindor or whatever. So the the attention to detail was um, was uh, was was explicit and um, and geez, I thought that. Going for that long, they might struggle to maintain dramatic effect. But each section of the uh, the performance did have its um quite uh, striking moments. That um you know, there's no way you, you I could imagine anyone falling asleep despite the marathon uh, uh, tension that you would have to pay. Uh, so yeah, I thought it was outstanding, Brendan. Excellent. Well, guess what. I'll have to save up to take the uh, take the girls now. Um, yes, because they're really into Harry Potter as well. 
And we've done similar things in that the girls all read the books when they were younger and um, we've read them as well. And um, yeah, we've obviously seen the film. So, yes, um, no real excuse, is there, if it's well apart from the cost of it, um, being, um, being in my home city here, Melbourne. I think it's currently playing in three places, isn't it, in the world, in, in London and Broadway or somewhere like that and, and Australia at the moment. So, um Yes, so I'm very jealous, as you can probably gather, Mark, um, for you seeing it. So, yeah, don't tell me any more plot issues with it or parts of it, um, but you do need to give your usual score um, within point two, usually, <laughs> of the same scores you give every week. So well, getting, are you going to give it out of I'm 10? I'm going to jump out of the, the um, 8.5 to 8.7 range, and uh, I think this really was a 9.5 on my uh, scale of success. Ah, excellent. Well, it must have been good, Mark. Now, just one other little aside before we get stuck into the news stories. What did you have for dinner? Where did you go for dinner? Oh, we walked around the corner. I think uh, what's it's not Collins Street. It's the one north of Collins Street. And there was a lovely – we walked up to a couple of um, – oh, bloody hell, you guys in Melbourne have that whole nightlife thing, particularly Saturday night going off. We walked up to a couple of rooftop – um, I don't know, they sort of cross between a bar and a cafe, um, but they were all full and we couldn't get a table. So we went into a nice Italian restaurant. What was it? The Spaghetti Tree was the restaurant we went oh, to. Oh, yes. And, and yes. the food was just gorgeous. So um, so not only did we have uh, excellent entertainment, we were gastronomically rewarded as well. <laughs> excellent. And did you end up buying a... Something for your niece, a wand or something from the from the um, from the shop there, or was it prohibitively expensive to buy anything um, from the merchandise counter? I, I, um, it was um, Sienna's birthday, and we had a few rules about what we could and couldn't buy. So I'm embarrassed to admit the only thing I purchased was a tie for me to work at to wear at work. Ah, well. Perhaps you should be wearing that tie for the um, vet board meetings, Mark, <laughs> and that will um, really make you stand out and be distinguished. Um, you, you, don't, you, the next you don't think they'll take the Slytherin house tie the wrong way? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, on that point, I'm going to talk about cardiomyopathy <laughs> in, um, in dogs, Mark, and, and, I'm, and I'm sure you've been all over this story that's sort of been around some of the sites recently and uh, it was a post about the risk of heart disease in grain-free diets and um, ingredients and it um, it was a post made by um, I think one of the Tufts University cardiologists and it's had uh, I think close to 200,000 page views mark in the first week um, so it's gone it's gone viral as you'd say um, so um, and there's been a bit of a confusion about it too. So lots of lots of clients wondering what the hell's the story with you know can I feed these homemade diets to my doggies and is it going to cause dilated cardiomyopathy? What is the story? So a couple of the or a few of the cardiologists banded together and and wrote an article published in the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association. Mark, to um, provide a summary about their current understanding of dilated cardiomyopathy. And um, I'm just going to run through a couple of the points um, from that article, Mark. And we'll have a link to this little summary too at vetgurus.com. And the first point is that it's not just grain-free diets um, that have an issue with potentially causing... um, Causing dilated cardiomyopathy, um, she, um, this this author Lisa um, Freeman labels them as beg diets. Mark, have you heard of that? Yeah, it's before? a new. It is a new one on me. Yeah, beg boutique exotic boutique companies and exotic ingredients, um, all grain free. So boutique exotic or grain free. Um, so she's lumping it into a broader category there, in that the apparent link between beg diets and DCM may be due to ingredients used to replace grains in grain free diets, such as lentils or chickpeas, but also exotic meats and vegetables and fruit. But they still don't quite know what the what the story is and how it all fits in there. But um, that's their first point there, Mark. Um, and the second point is that most dogs being diagnosed with DCM do not have low taurine levels. And the reason why they wanted to point this out or stress this, Mark, is because a lot of clients are adding taurine to their to their homemade diets or their beg diets um, 
thinking that it will reduce the risk for heart disease. But in their hospital and their studies, um, they found that more than 90% of their patients with DCM, um, the taurine levels have been measured and the majority of them are a normal mark. So um, don't think that it's um, related to taurine levels because that's probably unlikely. And um, point three was the raw diets and the homemade diets, and this is one that I found of interest, um, are not safe alternatives. Um, and they were just trying to stress the point that uh, a lot of these diets are, you know, because you're adding a little bit of this and a little bit of that, um, and it's usually put together by somebody who is not a nutritionist, um, then the chances of either over or under supplementing these diets is, is greatly increased. And that's what I always tend to stress to my clients. Um, even the clients would like to feed some sort of um, home-cooked meals and that, Mark, I always try and try and encourage them to at least feed a small amount of a, one of the, the better quality balanced foods um, in there as well. So, yeah, I thought it was quite an interesting, a, a really good summary actually, Mark, about um, about DCM in dogs and there's still a lot they don't know about it. But, um, you know, um, as you know, once um, one of these stories get out there, as we'll talk about with a couple of our other stories today, um, the internets go crazy. So that's my. Oh, first and I think story. your first story was accentuated by the um, the uh, FDA, the Drug Authority in America, who put out a little press release after those uh, um, Tufts professors, um, and that pumped pumped it along quite a lot. And um, and they have put out a a uh, um, a, Q, a FAQ, which is um, which is also sort of pretty useful. The the um, the one of the take-home messages for me was that there's only been, I think, 260-odd dogs uh, that have shown these signs, um, and um, and so I don't think people should immediately be alarmed. But I do think it does point to the problem with these, um, uh, um, well, big, boutique, exotic, and grain-free diets. Um, they are tapping into a bit of a fashion rather than hard science um and um and i think uh yeah i I worry that um that people pay a significant premium for food that uh may not necessarily be worthy of that premium brendan yes definitely and the other the only other comment that i missed out that they summarized is was the um that primary DCM is predisposed in breeds that are that is unrelated to diet, and they wanted to stress that traditionally certain breeds, such as Dobermans and Boxers and Irish Wolfhounds and Great Danes, are prone to the, the disease as well, and that the uh, that and and also that the taurine deficiency is the least common form they see. Um, so, yeah, it was interesting, and I've yeah I've just found that FDA. Um, little um, report there and yes I'm sure that once they pop that out it'll just say FDA is investigated potential connection between diet and cases of canine heart disease um, and yeah once once they put out something like that or an authority like that then I'm, uh, a lot of people suddenly jump up and pay attention what's your first news story Mark you've got something um, as important as the one I've um, just well it ticks about. all the boxes Brendan this story um, it has to do uh, with some of your old stomping grounds Hillsville Sanctuary um, Tiny Kevin which is always and Darwin um, it, always good topics to uh, if you find those in a story um, then you know it's going to be good um, and so <laughs> Kevin is the name um, given to a uh, um, one of the tiny Dazzurids, a fat-tailed Dunart, who managed to hop into a vehicle that was travelling um, across the centre of Australia, down through the middle, um, probably jumped in at Darwin um, and hung around in the car all the way down to Colac in the western districts of Victoria, a journey of um, 3,680 kilometres. The smash repair has discovered Kevin in the car with his big black eyes, his large ears and obviously his fat carrot-shaped tail in one of the panels of the car. Um, and fortunately, he was a- able to be safely captured um, unharmed, and now he's um, he's living at Hillsville Sanctuary. Um, and it's an interesting story because animal hitchhikers in, in cars or uh, various other um, transport um, are, are a surprisingly common thing, and many of our zoos and um, Wildlife refuges have to deal with a, a you know a large number of, of these uh, 
animals that have gotten into vehicles one way or another. And banana box frogs are probably yes. the, the most uh, typical one that people are aware of that, um, that uh, particularly uh, fruit, tropical fruit, um, will be boxed up. Uh, lovely and fresh, um, and then occasionally in between the little, um, particularly in bananas, between the the fruits in the hand, they'll the frogs will be sitting and they'll get transferred from their natural habitat. And of course, it's plays a potential uh, um, agent for spreading um, diseases like chytrid fungus. So um, it is, uh, it's a very significant uh, thing for us to be aware of. So it's very pleasing that um, Kevin's reached a destination where he will be cared for and that he won't cause any problems um, wandering around the the, uh, wilds of Melbourne and potentially damaging ecosystems down there. Apparently he's got a female called Brittany to live with. Brittany and Kevin, well, there you go. Um, yes, they're um, they are cute little, um, cute little animals. These donuts and so little, so you don't realise how small these are. Have you seen these? Um, dealt yeah, with had a little bit Mark? to do with them, and they are ridiculously small. But ridiculous, they pack a punch, Brendan. Yes, yes, they do. They um, you don't want to get on the other end of their <laughs> their little mouth. That's for sure. Um, and I mean, it, it just reminds me of a slightly unrelated topic. Um, do you see many um, hopping mice as as pets? Um, in Victoria, here you're allowed to keep them as a as a pet on a license, I think. And, and, they, and the same, yes, mice. in New South Wales, and, they're one of the species. Yep. And um, gee, they're so they're so fragile. Those little legs, those little you know, they're they're thinner than matchsticks, aren't they? And I've certainly seen, I reckon I've seen four or five of them over the years where they've, and, and they can you know they can do those vertical sort of jumps virtually. And um, I've I've seen yeah four or five of them with broken broken legs over the years, Mark. Where we've had to just put a bit of a, and they do quite well with splints. I've found. I don't know whether you've seen any or, or dealt with any. You just put a little, almost like a tape splint on the um, over the fracture there, and they um, they they heal reasonably well. Assuming we haven't got compromised to the circulation there, Mark. So yeah, but they're just so fragile. Some of these little little marsupials, Mark. So yeah, that's un- totally unrelated to to Kevin. I've taken, I've taken his um, thunder there a little bit. Um, well, my my, gee, my next news story, Mark, and um, you were you were rolling your eyes. I could tell, even though we're, we're a few um, fair few hundred kilometres away from each other. When I told you I was going to talk about this story, this is a story about the mystery surrounding the horrific death of a father of three. Who, according to the one of the one of one of the um, one of the um, um, sentences in in the um, clickbait there, Mark, who looked six months pregnant and passed away ten days after being dared to eat a gecko at a party, and there's a lot of controversy about this story here, and that um, this is the story, and sad that this you know 35 year old David Dow track. Tra- in Queensland, tragically died 10 days after the Christmas party on December the 1st, 2018. And it was in, it was diagnosed with salmonella infection, which doctors initially thought was caused by a chicken, um, as you do, Mark, with salmonella poisoning. Um, but um, they, they discounted that. And there's a whole lot of he said, she said um, comments from the party goers, Mark, in that um, there's, there's thoughts that he was dared to swallow or eat a gecko that was for some reason at the party. I presume they were outside, um, at, yeah, beside the Logan River, which is where the party was, which is where they often. Um, Oh no, that's where they went to um, celebrate his death. Sorry about that. I'm read <laughs> last Tuesday, and what would have been his 35 birthday, his family gathered beside the Logan River, where he often went fishing to hold a vigil in his honour. Oh, sorry about that. Um, so yes, um, but I expect that the gecko would have just been found um, in the region of where the party was being held, presuming it was held near his house there. Um, yeah, but there's there's comments from some party goers saying that he was dared to eat the gecko, um, that the gecko was there, but no, he didn't. He was dead and he said no, and others said he was dead and he said yes. But um, it's all a bit weird, Mark, isn't it, that the, the actual report of um, um, is sketchy, um, you know, what happened in the hospital. Obviously, he got a bit of um, bloat going on there um, and went into 
multiple organ failure, I'd say. Um, and, um, yeah, but um, I think your comment was off air before the start was why didn't they, um, you know, why didn't they type out if it was salmonella, what, what species of salmonella? Um, and I think that, um, you know, that, this is a classic case of the internet's grabbing a story and and uh, uh, turning it into a bit of a a uh, conspiracy theory or just repeating rumours more or less. I know there was a um, a um, uh, an article in one of the UK papers where they were talking about spargonosis as being a factor in the the um, in the story. But I I think this is what happens when um, when there's a, a uh, a story that people start talking about, and they really have no idea exactly what's happened. And I think, um, I think it is prudent, very prudent, for us to choose to um, wait until the you know the hospital does uh, uh, make some sense of it. Um, you would think that if they did type the salmonella, they would um, have a much higher index of suspicion of the source. Um, so yeah, um, and it, it does, and the take. The- the take-home story is don't eat geckos. I think, Mark, um, and, and at least um, before, at least um, cook them properly before you just um, toss and them down. Oh, for sure. Or, and, and perhaps, um, sorry, and perhaps don't um, don't drink too much before you um, decide on you want to um, take up a dare. If, if it's a pretty good rule of thumb, I reckon, if someone says. If you hear the phrase <laughs> "I dare you," the thing that's going to come afterwards is probably not a good thing to do. Especially if the word gecko or reptile or chick- chicken or, um, yes, snake um, comes into it, yes. Yes, what's your My last news last story, Mark? Story. It's a bit of a personal one, Brendan. Um, it's uh, the, in the newspapers in Australia, there's been a a, um, a little bit of story lately about um, one of uh, the people I know, Simon Gorta, um, who's taken, um, a, taken it on himself to collect most of the citing data for the last 17 years for the pelagic expeditions that twitches make out of the ports of Sydney, Port Stephens and Wollongong in New South Wales. And, of course, if you have once a month a boat going from three ports out to the edge of the continental shelf with um, each of the boats have about 18 um Twitches, bird watchers on board, um, and they sit out there for um, for uh, you know four or five hours, um, trying to. And they they um, I've done this myself, so I've I've been on one of the boats where Simon has collected some of the data, and so um, there's a, a huge amount of citizen science data that um, Simon's collated, um, and now. Um, uh, there's some publications that are using that data to make assessments of changes in population. Unfortunately, the evidence does point to a significant decline in the 17-year period since 2000, and uh, since 2000. Um, and it's very interesting that many of the species have uh, dropped off precipitously in the sightings, particularly uh, wandering albatross is one of the ones that. Uh, we see far less frequently, but it's an excellent example, a personal example of um, of what uh, uh, people can contribute to, um, and um, and you know, provided you can get by without uh, too many, you know, if you if you take your seasickness tablets before you go out, has been my experience, um, that makes the trip much more enjoyable and, and the science much more valuable once you're out there. Yes, and I I see the comment from him saying fifty percent of the time I'm lying on the deck because I'm prone to get in seasick, and it's certainly something that I don't think I'd cope with, Mark. I'm, it's one thing I'm hopeless with. It doesn't take much to get for me to get seasick. I'm, I'm a landlubber, Mark. So I think even with the even with the tablets, I'd, I'd struggle with something like that. I'm looking at the photo there of the of the citizen scientists as you as you. Um, Call the mark um, on the boat in that story. No, I cannot no, that, see you that, on the boat. That particular there, photo is the one that um, that goes out of Kiama, and um, <laughs> and it's and it's it's a much uh-huh. more seaworthy vessel than the one we go out on. No, I'm kidding. The, um, uh-huh. the boat that we go out is a wonderful, wonderful <laughs> fishing boat. Um, it's it's one of the fascinating things about these, Brendan, is um, that uh, you, you, I the first time I went out, the massive like 
huge expanse that is the open ocean at the continental shelf, about 30 kilometres off the coast, um, you wonder, like, how do these birds actually find you? And it's very interesting. The most effective way of attracting birds to these boats is for them to lob a um, a rag that's been soaked in um, maybe um, one of the fish oils. Um, and, uh, and it's only got about, I don't know, uh, maybe 50 or 100 mils of oil on the rag, but that creates a giant slick that will run out for several hundred metres from the boat. And the birds are attracted to the slick. They always look for the different refractory patterns off the surface of the water. And it brings birds in for, you know, for, well, a massive distance. And um, and you do get to see quite a surprising number and species, a number of species of birds when you're out on these boats, provided you're not lying on the, uh, on the um, floor. So yeah. they look for well, the slick. The change in light over uh, the slick, I yeah. reckon. Um, they had come from so far away that I don't think they can directly see the slick, but there's a difference in the quality of the light reflected off the slick. And it's amazing that, you know, with my dodgy old eyes, I can see the difference. Um, it's quite obvious. Um, and so for these birds with much more um, uh, attenuated vision, much more vision at, uh, specific to look for these sorts of things, it's it's amazing how far afield they come to check out what's the source and whether there's any food involved. Uh, now, is it a similar process if you sat at the beach with a with a pack of nice hot <laughs> chips, Mark, and 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 one seagull is there, and and you give it one chip, and then. Within five minutes, there's 50 seagulls there. How do all the other I think seagulls? It is very, no. I think it's a very Where do they come thing. from? Um, I think they're looking for the uh, the slick that arises from the fat in your chips. And uh... <laughs> there's the, the, the fat sort of um, dribbling down your sides of your mouth. Is that what they're looking at here? Yeah, and the refraction there. And then they're in. They're in for the chips, yes. So the the trick is never to share a chip with a, with a with a seagull, isn't it, Mark? And the uh, other thing is not to say the word seagull. Amongst I've discovered amongst the more zealous twitchers, um, it's a pretty important thing to identify the birds accurately. And there are no birds in the world who technically are called seagulls. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, Mark. <laughs> Let's jump on to our first. Well, our main topic, I, I think you should um, lead this one, Mark, because you're better at this than me. Um, our main topic is referral cases, and we hinted at this as a main topic previously, I think, in a previous podcast, and we wanted to chat about um, the process of both receiving referral cases and, and also sending referral cases, and, and uh, I'm sure you you do both as I, I do, Mark, in my practice, and I'm, I'm more than happy to send stuff off to other vets who are much better at um, things than I am, Mark, and um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk through that whole process and some of our thoughts and, and tips about um, what we should be doing and, and perhaps what we shouldn't be doing um, with, with handling these cases. So what do you do? Um, what, what do you recommend to, to, to vets if they if they say, look, I'm thinking about, um, they send you an email or phone up and say they want to send over a referral case. What sort of the key points you, you stress to them to help make the process a, a happy one for everybody, the client and the referring vet and the vet who's had the well, case? Well, I think this is to an them. excellent topic, Brendan, and it can it covers so um, much area of practice and particularly I think for uh, many recent graduates who, uh, you know, they've, for us older um, curmudgeons, um, we, we grew up in a time when there literally wasn't often anyone to send cases to and so um, we had clients who were much happier, I suppose, um, that if we said, oh, we'll give this a go, there's no one else that's going to do it, they'd be very tolerant um, around the time I was a new graduate. Whereas these days, I think the general public have a much, uh, well, you know, the internet makes them more sophisticated. They have a much higher expectation. They know um, from watching various TV shows um, the amazing things that uh, that might be possible without necessarily knowing the cost. And so it does put a lot of extra pressure on veterinarians to know the right things to do about referral. And, of course, there is, Brendan, a... Uh, uh, um, a uh, legal mandate 
um, on at least people in New South Wales, and I believe it's um, uh, most of the way around Australia in one form or another, that um, that if yes. uh, that, that veterinarians must provide um, those choices to their clients, um, that if they're uh, even if they're capable, um, it's a wise thing to discuss with the clients that you know in this particular case we could refer you for internal medicine or whatever. And the other thing is that um, referral doesn't just, as you've highlighted, doesn't just have to be to um, a uh, you know a specific specialist. Um, I think it's uh, um, here in the in the case of uh, Newcastle where I work, we don't have um, in our immediate vicinity a specialist surgeon, but there are a number of vets who um, have. Uh, taken on additional training and have a particular interest in an area, um, in, some of them in orthopaedic surgery, some of them in other forms. And so they've built up a little, I don't know, um, area of, uh, of experience that, um, that we feel comfortable um, asking them to have a look at those things. And of course, when we're talking about um, uh, um, avian and exotic um uh, cases there we don't have any specialists here around Newcastle and um, and so lots of our colleagues do end up referring those cases to us because of our special interest our particular interest in those cases and I think it's it can get very confusing for the client can't it mark um, the whole the whole bit are you a specialist are you not a specialist um, um, why? Are you keen on potentially treating my animal or referring it on to somebody else? And I think I always, you know, like me, I'm pretty simple. I just get back to basics with, with things and, and say to them, look, uh, uh, this particular condition or um, surgery or medical case that I'm dealing with, um, I've seen a reasonable number of these previously and I'm reasonably confident that, that I can do a competent job with this 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 case in front of me um and or i would be saying to them look i don't do many of these cruciate surgeries which i don't these days and i'd say to the client look look i'll refer you to another vet um down the road who who does plenty of cruciates every every month or two um and because they're doing it every month or two they're not a specialist but um the, the chances of of you getting a, a better result is probably increased um going to them compared with sticking with me at my practice I, um that's what i tend to say to the clients i tend to try and keep it keep it simple with them although we do have obviously been in a capital city we do have a fair number of specialists in 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 most of the disciplines um near us and and i'd say the same thing as well so say if i was referring it to an orthopedic surgeon um who's a specialist um I would be stating as such and say, look, this, that's what they do all day, every day. They have the, the the training and and the and the piece of paper to back up the fact that they are registered as a specialist in that discipline, and um, that's what they do. And um, um, you have the option of going to them, even if it was a case that I would be reasonably comfortable in doing. Um, as you mentioned, I would always offer offer every every option for them, and I think it's pretty similar to what we do with our general medicine cases as well, Mark, isn't it? You you give them the option of the full diagnostic workup and and the the potential extra expense of doing that, or um, the client might say, "No, I only have fifty dollars. Yeah. What can you do for my do do for my patient?" And 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 you may strongly suggest to them that hey you know we need to spend more than fifty dollars on on this animal that that's quite unwell um but uh, and and here's what i recommend and as long as you've recorded the fact that um and and you've outlined it to the client you've you've covered yourself legally yep, is that, indeed, is that the case? If it, and you've hit the nail on the head with respect to communication like so many aspects of uh practice and uh, professional life communication is at its core and uh, making sure that you do have that discussion with the client, and um, and certainly there's nothing at all wrong with, as you said, uh, I, I I see this this case regularly, and and I feel perfectly comfortable dealing with it. Um, it's the cases that you don't have experience with, or that you don't have particular equipment. You know, the 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 sort of case that might require a CT scan before a cancer surgery. Um, you know, uh, getting that done uh, by someone that has a CT scanner is obviously the right thing to do. Um, uh, sticking, um, we have a, a uh, you know, the rigid scope. Uh, I know you love playing with your scope, Brendan, um, but um, obviously there's, uh, 
uh, gastroscopy in a larger animal that we wouldn't be able to do with our current equipment, so we would refer that. But making a note about it, having a discussion, recording it in your rec medical record, um, that sets you up to be very well. Um, and the other thing I'd say, while it's good that we talk about uh, the aspects from um, the the uh, the board, um, from the veterinary board and the regulatory sort of point of view, um, I've got to say that um, that it's not a very uh, in surveying the the nature of complaints, um, uh, referral, failure to refer or um, uh, offer the skills of colleagues um, is not a very common thing. I think by and large, as a profession, we do respect those other colleagues that have particular skills. Like Clint Eastwood, we know um, a man's got to know his limitations. And um, I think as a profession, we by and large do. Um, and, uh, and I think um, just Remembering those things helps us to know when to refer and when not to. Yes. So getting back to my <laughs> original question that I've failed to answer, um, no, um, what, do we, what do we do when we send a referral case um, or, or when we, we suggest to somebody, they ring up and say, I want to send over a, a bird to you, Mark. Um, what, what do you ask of that veterinarian client? So I think the client? first thing is that we, want, we do want to get um, all the relevant data, but I have spoken to some of um, my specialist friends, um, and one of the things that they that you know is the 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 uh, a problem for them is when they get you know seven hundred pages of an animal's history and they've got to work their way through it to find the relevant information for um, you know the particular aspect of the case they're going to be looking at. So. Don't necessarily just print out the animal's entire history about how it got a vaccine in 2002. Um, uh, Try and condense that down to the relevant information. Don't forget to send um, the, you know, the the uh, ancillary uh, aspects of the history besides the medical record. You want um, the radiographs and any blood work, and um, and those things really make it. Um, you know, there's nothing worse than a specialist getting a case and going, oh, okay, now we're going to take some radiographs, and the client goes, oh no, the referring vet's already taken those. Um, and so making sure that all that information goes with uh, to the specialist and uh, the referring vet. And um, and before um, the patient gets there, try to plan ahead a little bit yes. so that they're not sort of showing up. You and I will have had this exact problem, and I've probably done it myself, so I'm not judging anyone, but um, trying to make sure that the the history doesn't show up 10 minutes before the people walk into the consult, trying to plan ahead and be a bit time organised, um, that makes a huge difference to the success of the consult at the, the, con the, the uh, place you refer them to. Yes, and if they have hard copies of some of those um, additional um, diagnostics like radiographs or, or bloods, I often ask the client to get a hard copy and bring that in as well in case. I mean, we we love to love to get it all emailed to us these days, and then that way we can save on paper um, if if we're not printing it out. But sometimes things don't work, or you go to look at the file and it's suddenly disappeared. <laughs> so I think it's important to potentially have a have a hard copy as well. And yeah, not seven hundred pages. Um, so yeah, the other so, thing. Yeah, uh, I was just going to say that. Um, yeah, sorry, it's mate. also worth um, at least giving the clients a little. I I I, I avoid when I'm referring clients to other practices, I avoid trying to give them, you know, specific estimates, but I don't think it's a bad thing to do a little bit of a, um, you know, uh, overview when we refer cases to our ophthalmology specialists, we'll give them an idea of the um, the consult fee and um, and talk to them about how uh, being specialists, they're likely to be more expensive. Um, so particularly the consult fee, I think, is uh, really important because otherwise people will show up. Um, some people show up having already paid a veterinary consult fee at one practice. Um, we've had clients show up and um, and you know, not expect to pay at a second one because, you know, they're having the problem looked at um, the same problem. So I think communicating that is a really good thing to help manage clients' yes. expectations. And making sure the client 
books ahead with that consultation. You mentioned about turning up um, with the history just before the consult, and I'm sure you've had a fair number of referral consults where the, the referring vet has said, oh, just, just go to Brendan's practice, and, and then they just roll up um, in the middle of a busy consultation period, and it's this complex referral case that's just just arrived and we knew nothing about. And they're the ones that if there's a chance of me ever getting a little bit a little bit angry, Mark, or cranky. They're the ones that it might happen. Um, not that, not that it happens very often, but yeah. So, so make sure. And and I, I think the other thing we need to mention is the is the um, privacy issue there too. So, we usually ask the client to contact the referring vet to request all the histories, etc., rather than phoning direct to the clinic, um, because sometimes they'll say no, we can't give out the the, the referral information um, without the direct yes from the client, even yeah. if they referred that client to us in the first place. So, so we off we often just say to the client, look, you need to phone Doctor Mark um, and 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 request the, the referral history sent over. It does get a and, and it, this is a little bit off topic, but not really, Mark. It does get a little bit tricky if if it's a if it's a if it's not a referral as such, so it's a, it's a client who has um, had a run in with their with their previous veterinarian, Mark, and then they decide they want to, for some strange reason, come and see Doctor Brendan, and um, they they um, don't want to go back to this other other um, vet because they've had a fight with them. Um, that gets a little bit tricky, doesn't it? Dealing with that sort of um, it can um, get in the history from the referring vet or, or the or the previous veterinarian, and um, um, especially if there's some big. And as usual, it's just a um, majority of them are just a, mi- a misunderstanding. So, um, but it's often irreconcilable differences. Um, so it's good that they both move on to a different clinic and, and a different client. But I think the, the good the thing, the good well, thing there, so, and particularly with um, those second opinions on um, cases where there may be some discontent, um, I think it's a good thing that to get back to what you said, to ask the clients to um, obtain a copy of the history themselves. Um, and um, if they don't, and I've had situations where clients don't want to leave their 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 the practice they go to. They have a good relationship with them, but they just have some concerns about a particular case and they want a second opinion and they don't necessarily want their routine vet to, you know, think that they're going behind their back or anything like that. Um, And so you do sometimes have to dance a very fine line of respecting um, privacy and making sure that uh, you um, do as much as you can with whatever you can. But asking the clients to get that history um, certainly shortcuts that uh, yes. um, trying to communicate with a vet who might feel hard done by. I, th- I, th- I think the most difficult ones there, Mark, are the, where the client has has left the previous vet on a sour note, and you ask them for the referral, and it might be a maybe a simple, you know, um, um, simple case, or it maybe had, had complex issues over the years, and yet that client, you ask them to to phone up Doctor X to to get the re- previous history sent over because they're moving vets, and they have such a such a row with them that they don't even want to phone the vet clinic. So you put in a bit of a tricky situation there and that the client refuses to to phone the previous vet to get the previous history. Um, so we usually phone up the, the vet and, and um, ask them for it. Legally, I'm not quite sure whether whether they're break, – are they breaking the law, Mark, if they, if they then send over the history, even though the client didn't just – they just they just detest the previous vet so much. No, don't I don't think – it is a very, like, um, uh, what's the right way to describe it? There's multiple objectives in, in, in people's actions in those situations where you want to protect privacy, but you also want to facilitate the care of the animal. And I think in most of the legal cases I've been involved in, if you can mount an argument that what you were doing that maybe – um, trod on the toes of one aspect of uh, of the code of conduct or whatever, but you did it in terms of maximising the welfare of an animal. Um, that's sort of like a little bit of a trump card, I think. If if what you're doing um, might uh, cause a, a grey area with privacy, you haven't strictly speaking gotten the owner's um, a direct permission to share that medical record. Um, if you're doing so to facilitate the yeah you're for the right okay. reason yeah 
Yep. Okay, so we've got, we've got that um, we've got that referral case over, and we've worked it up, Mark, or, or the the referring vet has worked up the case. What what sort of things should that referring vet be doing as far as um, reporting back to the to the vet to, um, who sent the case over um, in order to make a, a smooth transition well, to do the right really, thing? Uh, um, this is a test, I suppose, of of uh, how we're maturing as a profession because we really haven't had until you know the last couple of decades we haven't had to do this we would take on cases and just deal with them ourselves but i think um it's increasingly important both for um the referring vets and most specialists have fairly good systems in place to ensure that they uh provide a um a fairly detailed uh follow-up to the referring vet um but even in the cases uh that we get to see we we're not um uh, absolutely perfect at it, but we make an effort to c- communicate with the referring vet and let them know what we've done and uh, what's likely to happen. And interestingly, in our case, people, and I think you probably have the same thing, Brennan, people travel um, quite a distance down the coast because there's not a lot of people who, um, not a lot of vets who do the work that we do on the north coast of New South Wales. And so we will get people to travel quite a long way, um, but then trying to communicate with their their um, their local vet, their referring vet, um, to ensure that um, that they can get um, whether it be medications or progress exams done locally, yes. um, and we can still that dialogue between uh, vets, the collegial communication. I think that's really important, and clients are expecting more and more of that stuff. Yes, and I think it's that whole aspect of just working together and, and sort of leads on to our, our third point, main point that we were going to talk about, and that's that, that, that not being afraid to refer cases in that, you know, I, I generally think that re- personally me referring a case to another another veterinarian, I don't lose that client. If anything, they become more strongly bonded to your practice because um, they see that you're willing to send off um, their their beloved pet um, for for the treatment that you may not be able to provide. Whereas in the past, and, and there's still some vets who cling to that notion that if you um, if you send away to another veterinarian, that they'll steal the steal the client from you. And and I know that used to be the a main thought with some of the um, emergency practices, um, wasn't it, Mark, um, 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 for, for a fair period of time? But I've found the exact opposite with with the emergency practices as well because um, they've got so much equipment and gear there and they're highly staffed that that the costs um, for treating an animal overnight um, is not inexpensive. So they come back to come back to my practice after having their patient in critical care over a weekend and they think, gee, very reasonable, very cheap. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so don't be afraid of referring um, because you certainly won't lose clients there. And I think, you know, and it's the right thing to do, isn't it? It's, it's that whole aspect we were talking about at the start, providing the, the right, the right treatment and the right options for that for that patient in front. And I've got of one it, other um, I've got and, one other point and, and, to make about not, that, Brendan. I think yeah. that um, we don't ever be afraid of referring. And the the uh, generally speaking, my experience has been much the same as yours. That referral has just been a practice builder. But by the same token, I think um, some recent graduates are. are um, you know, they're a little bit afraid that they, if they don't refer a case, they will get into trouble. Um, and I want them, I, I think that, you know, that's uh, the, the the opposite point that you, if you've got a, a difficult internal medicine case, then certainly don't be afraid to maybe call a specialist and talk to them about it. But I think it's really important where you seek advice from more experienced practitioners that, um, that you offer to pay for their time um, and um, and and I know I routinely, where I do speak to specialists about cases that I'm dealing with, I will every single time make sure I ask them to charge if they feel it's appropriate. And I have no trouble passing that charge on to the clients. Um, it's part of the workup of their animal, and um, and I think it's. Uh, 
I think, you know, that's one of those respect things that if I'm trying to get uh, um, information that I don't necessarily have or detailed experience, de- you know, benefit of experience, um, I want to I respect the person that has that and uh, remunerate them appropriately. I know most specialists when I do that, if, if it's literally just a word or a, you know, a sentence, a, a short response, they're generally pretty generous with their time. And it's only when it gets involved and complicated and chews into their time significantly that they, they generally consider charging. Um, so, so, but I think it's a good thing to be prepared for that. Yes. Yes. And I, th- and I think it's good business sense as well. And just helping colleagues doing that. And I certainly have a, a, a list of, of, veterinarians and clinics that are often emailing um, me or, or, or phoning with, with questions about cases and I'm more than happy to provide them advice and some of them are you know detailed detailed cases and it's rare that that I would ask for any payment for those because in the long run you know they'll end up referring um, majority of them anyway will, will refer cases over to me and, and um, I'm more than happy to help out with them um, even with some of the cases like there's a couple of clinics in Tasmania that obviously it's hard for the clients to to get across to catch the catch the plane or the or the um, or the boat across to Melbourne to um, to see me but I'm more than happy to provide advice for cases and every Every so often, every couple of years or so, I might ha- head over to Tasmania and, and, and do some consults down there. So, I think it's um, you know it's it's all it's all been nice to people, and and um, it all it all it all comes back as a positive, doesn't it, Mark? Um, helping out your colleagues and you know, you're, we're you're pretty all small about industry, the aren't you, Brendan? And I think it's. In- Yes, it's um, well. It it reminds me of a, a a review I will do in the next couple of weeks, um, and you'll see how it fits in with um, with what what I'm talking about at the minute. Um, yes, but I'll leave that to a, a, an episode in the future. Are there any other sort of final comments about referrals? I think the only thing I would about, say um, from a like a regulatory point of view is that um, it is really important if you are, you know say in your and my situation where we accept referrals about. Um, unusual and avian patients. It's really, really important to respect the people who have done their specialist training and ensure that um, that the word specialist or um, any version of it um, uh, is not, you know, is not used in the conversation. Train your staff to just say, look, Mark has a particular interest in this. He's been doing it for a long time. He's not a specialist, um, but uh, we we are happy to accept the case and um, we can work it up for you. I think that's just uh, just marking a respect for those. I mean, there's a legal requirement that we don't confuse who is a specialist and not. Um, and Absolutely. just the, it generally tends to be, um, uh, you know, the the inexperienced uh, staff person answering the phone who um, starts that process and um, and it's just important not to let that happen. Yes, and I think it's rare that you have a veterinarian that's a bit of a rogue vet who, who um, does does promote themselves as a specialist when they are not. Um, so, but as, as we said previously, it is quite confusing for clients, you know, what is a specialist, what isn't, and, and how come you're seeing lots of unusual pets all the time and yet you don't call yourself a specialist. And um, I think it's just trying to um, highlight the... The important point that yeah okay we, we deal with these patients a fair bit and we have for a, a large number of years and um, that that's um, that's our interest in that area um, rather than that we have a formal qualification because one does not exist in in that particular yes. particular area yes. Um, yes 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 it will in the future well Mark I, I think we need to stop um, I'm off to feed some seagulls or should be or should I be saying gulls um, and um, what is it about hot chips, Mark? Why are they so good? Um, Hot chips seem to be one of those foods that I love to uh, look forward to, but when I eat them, mm, there's only a few places that I really enjoy getting hot chips from. I always regret eating them. Uh, you, you react to it. Well, this morning I was supposed to head off for my fasted blood um, screen, Mark, um, because I was due for my annual checkup. So, um, but I was feeling a tad, 
tad under the weather, so I decided not to go. So I'll probably go next week. So it's probably good that I haven't been eating too many chips and um, fatty foods lately because my one of my um, cholesterol levels is um, up a little bit. And um, my doctors or my GPs always at me about um, making sure I keep eating my pulses and and and. Um, and um, lentils and beans and all those sorts of things, which we do. Um, so I think part of it's genetic and that I'm slightly high with my with my fat levels that um, shouldn't be up a bit. So it will be interesting to see what my levels are, but I will report back to to the podcast world when we um, after I've gone and I've been back to the GP, and um, hopefully it's nothing too too depressing, Mark. And if it isn't, I'm I'm, right I'm heading now. out to buy some <laughs> chips. I must admit. Yes. All right. Well, on that point, I think it's time that we say goodbye. And yeah, visit vetgurus.com. Um, thanks to Nick for being our new patron. And um, go to patreon.com vetgurus. And we'll talk to you all next week. where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes, and more. You can contact us via email at